Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. Welcome back. You are listening to episode 18, Trusting Your Intuition, The Seriousness of Stalking. I'm Casey from the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, and in this episode, I will be exploring the topic of stalking. We'll talk about some foundational pieces like definitions and statistics. We will also explore some warning signs to pay attention to. And finally, I will provide some tips for what to do if you think this is happening to you or a friend of yours. As a culture, we often use the word stalking to describe lighthearted or humorous behavior. In reality, though, stalking is a very serious form of interpersonal violence. Instances of stalking can escalate from 0 to 60 pretty fast, and they often begin with behavior that feels annoying or bothersome, and then quickly shift into intensely threatening behavior. As a culture, we've made stalking into a joke, as a way to pass off interactions. How many of us have used the phrase, I totally Facebook stalked you, or I promise I'm not stalking you, when walking awkwardly behind someone in front of you? These little instances can numb us to the times when we really should take what we are experiencing seriously. And they can also make it easier for loved ones and friends to be dismissive when you might seek support. So knowing that January is Stalking Awareness Month, let's get into this a little bit more. Stalking literally means to pursue prey or quarry. Legally, it's defined by state statutes, and it's a pattern of unwanted attention, harassment, contact, or conduct directed at a specific person that would cause a reasonable person to fear harm. That harm could be to their physical health, mental or emotional health, or to their safety. Stalking also applies to acts committed against a person's family, friends, and acquaintances that would put a person in fear for their safety. The variety of specific strategies utilized and behaviors displayed by stalkers are limited only by the creativity and ingenuity of the stalker themselves. In Colorado, stalking is defined as harassing someone, i.e. following, contacting, or watching another person, in a way that causes them to feel fearful. A first-time offense is considered a Class 5 felony and a Class 4 felony when there's an order of protection or court order already in place. However, the term stalking is more commonly used to describe specific kinds of behavior directed at a particular person, such as harassment or threats. Stalking is a gender-neutral crime, with both male and female perpetrators and victims. However, best statistics indicate that 75 to 80% of all stalking cases involve men stalking women. Most stalkers tend to fall into the young to middle age category, and most have an above-average intelligence. Stalkers can come from every walk of life and every socioeconomic background. Virtually anyone can be a stalker, just as anyone can be a stalking victim. Stalking is significantly more common among college students. A study conducted in 2015 tells us that the rate among individuals ages 18 to 24 is almost double that of any other age range. The access to personal information on campus is readily available, and it's easy to know when and where the classes are located. Often campuses are small enough that finding a person's routine is not difficult. Where does someone park their car? Where does someone eat? Where do they live? Additionally, campuses are generally open to the public and have free Wi-Fi that allows electronic information. For instance, here at CSU, we utilize an online directory that will publish office locations, students' majors, 
and emails and phone numbers. People can easily opt out of having their information listed in the directory, but it does require a formal request, and often our students don't even know this directory exists. Finally, while college students are more likely than the general public to acknowledge stalking, they are less likely to report it to law enforcement. In fact, 70 to 75% of college victims do not contact law enforcement. The other piece to note about the framing of this particular topic is that it often happens in the context of a relationship. In fact, the best estimates put 50 to 60% of stalkers to be current or former intimate partners. Often the stalking behaviors start during the relationship and coexist with other forms of intimate partner violence. Perhaps the scariest part of this information is highlighted in this quote from a 2006 study. Intimate stalkers, compared to non-intimate stalkers, are by far the most malignant. They often have violent criminal records, abuse stimulants, but are rarely psychotic. They frequently approach their targets and escalate in frequency and intensity of pursuit. They insult, interfere, threaten, and are violent. Over one half of these subjects will physically assault their object of pursuit. Virtually all of them will reoffend, and they will do so quickly. Almost one out of three will threaten with or use a weapon. Wow, that's pretty scary. So let's take a minute to let that sink in. Over half of the people being stalked are experiencing it from someone that they love and trust. They can really get into a person's psyche. In fact, psychological and physical impact of stalking on its victims includes symptoms that can have a devastating effect on a person's life. They might include nightmares, flashbacks, hypervigilance, social withdrawal, severe anxiety, panic reactions, sleeping and eating disorders, anxiety, loss of self-esteem, increased drug use, and stress-related illnesses. Hearing a list like this, it can be easy to zone out and take the list as a collective. But it's deeply important not to do that. Each and every one of these items can and often does have a significant impact on someone's well-being. Left unacknowledged, these symptoms can have long-range effects as well as compromise a student's ability to remain on the college campus or complete their academic pursuits. In fact, some survivors of stalking have to change many things about their daily lives. I have worked with victims who have had to relocate, sometimes more than once, and each time they move, they lose deposits and time at work. I have worked with survivors who have had to purchase expensive home security equipment so that they can feel safe enough to sleep at night. Many have significant drop in grades due to their inability to fully pay attention in class under the constant worry that their stalker could show up at any moment. And yet, I have had so many stalking survivors in my office questioning their own intuition. Am I making too big of a deal out of this? I think it might be overreacting. I think they're just awkward and I don't want to make a big deal. All of those thoughts and feelings are incredibly valid. But many of these thoughts are also rooted in some internalized oppression. On the whole, people who are socialized as girls and women are taught that being assertive will make you a bitch. We are taught that a firm and a direct no or stop contacting me puts me over the top. So when we say no by not really saying no, and people who are socialized as men are taught that anything short of a direct no is an opportunity to try again. Now, I know this is a simplification, 
But you can also see how this leads to so much harm in our society, especially when it comes to stalking. Things can go from mildly annoying one minute to incredibly scary and dangerous the next. If you're listening to this podcast and take nothing else away, please take this. Trust your instincts. They were created in us for a reason. And social pressure has us believing that trusting them is often an overreaction. It's okay not to want contact from a person. It is okay not to want their attention. You owe them nothing. It is okay to be firm. It's okay to tell someone to leave you alone. And if they don't listen, it's a pretty good clue into their motives. So let's explore what some of those intuitions might be telling you. Stalking on a college campus can be hard to recognize and define. Stalking may begin as bothersome attention, including unwanted telephone calls, emails, letters, waiting for a person after class or work, or asking repeatedly for shared social time. These incidents are sometimes first seen as flattering. Often we may dismiss the behavior as merely socially immature and choose to give the stalker the benefit of the doubt. The public views college campuses as a safe place, and we don't want to believe that anyone would actually harm us. Every case of stalking must be considered as potentially dangerous, and early intervention is critical. If not confronted early about inappropriate behavior or unwanted actions, this person may soon cross the line into criminal stalking activity by engaging in threatening behavior that brings psychological and potentially physical harm. Stalkers are motivated by obsession and a desire for control, which stem from either a real or imagined relationship with the person that they are stalking. So let's take a closer look at some of those behaviors. Stalking may start off as little gifts or notes, either given to the victim or left where they will find it. The notes may range from being pleasant to being sexually oriented, or simply may be off the wall depending on the stalker. These gifts typically get more explicit and vexing as they are continuously refused or rejected. I have worked with people who say their stalker gave them a cup of coffee as a pick-me-up, and that felt fine. But when that same stalker escalated to leaving stuffed animals on their apartment porch, they began to get really worried. Stalkers also work to harass their victims with continual stream of information so that they know the assailant is always lurking out there. While sitting with the survivor reporting her stalker to the university, I witnessed her phone lighting up continuously. The perpetrator was texting and texting and texting, harassing messages. We sat there in real time watching the phone light up again and again. These messages were vague, but when read as a whole, it was clear. This was meant to threaten and intimidate this woman, and she had been dealing with it for weeks. It was overwhelming to me, and I was just witnessing it for 30 minutes. And yet, the impact of acts like this are minimized and excused away time and time again. Most stalkers are also good at tracking their victims. They follow, peep, and record. They usually keep logs or diaries and memorize as much as possible about the victim. Electronic means of stalking have increased significantly in recent years. It is not uncommon for a victim to get a text complimenting them on what they're wearing, even when they haven't seen their stalker that day. Stalkers have even started to use software that makes it look like they are someone from your phone's contact list. So it can look like I'm texting my best friend about my evening plans, and I might actually be giving that information to my stalker. 
Furthermore, with the rise of social media, stalkers have more access to information about us than ever before. How many of us have done something like this? I was taking a picture of my kids on their first day of school to post online, and my house number was right there in the photo. Or, in my pre-vacation excitement, I've posted about being so pumped about spending time somewhere warm, only to realize that I've just now told the world my house will be empty for a week. With social media, we share so much of our lives that stalkers can pretty easily find out about our routines and habits. Sometimes stalking can escalate to threats of violence, and that's when many victims begin to get scared. These threats may be a way to coerce the victim to do what the stalker wants. And sometimes stalkers escalate so quickly that there's no threat. Instead, they go directly to causing physical harm. Even if there is no physical threat of harm, continual harassment and surveillance become very real emotional and psychological threat to victims of stalking. This can mean hacking into social media accounts and then posting embarrassing information about the victim. It can mean starting rumors and driving wedges between support systems and their victim. In the most serious cases, stalkers may file small claims or other legal actions against their victims. These cases are usually eventually dropped and are strictly used to harass and manipulate the victim. They may even make slanderous remark to victims' friends, classmates, or coworkers thereby causing victims damage in both interpersonal relationships and professional reputation. The ripple effect of these behaviors extend to people in victims' lives. Stalkers may resort to harassing family members, friends, and partners if they're not able to contact the victim directly. In ex-partner stalking cases, one of the most dangerous times for the victim is when they start dating a new person. Remember, stalking is about having power and control. And any time a stalker's control is threatened, it can mean an escalation of violence. Finally, vandalism and trophy collection are common tactics used by stalkers, causing emotional and financial burden on the victim. Stalkers are often known to collect items from their victim's residence, backpacks, or vehicles. Some stalkers will commit theft to both further their own information gathering as well as spur on their fantasies of intimate relationships. Okay. I know a lot of this sounds really scary, and it is. So let's take a deep breath together. Breathe in. Breathe out. Because the reality is, you don't have to put up with this behavior. And that is how the advocates at the WGAC and other agencies across the country can help. But before we get started talking about what to do, I want to say just a quick word about risk reduction strategies. As a whole, the advocates at the WGAC tend to stay away from the idea that there is something a person can do to protect themselves from harm. Think self-defense classes, MACE, etc. I unpacked some of the reasons for this in Season 1's episode on the neurobiology of trauma. So give that a listen if you want more on why risk reduction strategies can be harmful to the wider culture. But for now, let's focus on why it's coming up here in this episode. Well, there's a difference in this wider culture thinking it's on the person experiencing oppression to stop their own oppression and helping people actively experiencing harassment and violence safety plan to help navigate their reality. So in this next section, we will spend some time exploring safety planning and documentation as a way of empowerment and reclaiming for the victims of these crimes. First of all, I want to say again how important it is to trust your instincts. 
If something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Victims of stalking often feel pressured by family or friends to downplay the stalker's behavior. But stalking poses a real threat of harm. Your safety is paramount. Have a plan about who you will contact when you feel unsafe. Is it a friend? A hotline? The police? They are all valid options. If you're being stalked, you need to make it very clear to the stalker you are not interested. A firm no is a clear and concise message that you are not interested in their advances. This is a time when it is okay to not be polite. Make it clear about what boundaries you need to set and stick to them. Remember, this person is trying to exert power and control, and you don't have to agree to their terms. You don't even have to be the person who says no. You can have friends or family tell the stalker to leave you alone and that you want no more contact. I've even worked with law enforcement to help in these situations. A police officer I know calls this tool the knock-it-off conversation. If a person in uniform tells the stalker to stop, oftentimes stalkers will get the picture to stop or there will be consequences. They often don't like it when their tactics will result in consequences from themselves. And this conversation can be that incentive they need to cease their behavior. It's also a good idea to notify family members or close friends if you believe you are being stalked, both to build support and put them on the lookout. It's okay to stick to your word here, too. If they try to minimize and explain the behaviors away, ask. What happens if I'm right about this and something bad happens? What harm will come from helping me feel safer? You can explain why some of these actions that may seem harmless are causing you fear. Unfortunately, I really hate these next pieces of advice. And when it comes down to it, these steps might mean the difference between being safe and unsafe. We call this tool safety planning, and it means creating various plans to minimize the potential harm. Some examples of this might be to give a trusted friend your itinerary when going on a date so that they can notify people if something goes wrong, or to vary your habits and routes. Example, you can take a different route to class than normal. This makes it harder for you to be followed. Or you can make your social media accounts private and limit the number of friends you have in common with your perpetrator. All of these ideas are ways to make you safer. Finally, document everything. The key to getting help with a stalker is to document. Everything this individual does must be chronicled when you believe you are being stalked. Also, save everything the stalker sends you and record when and where you found it. You can tape phone calls. You can save voicemails, emails, IMs, text messages, and any social media contacts. Experts also recommend that victims keep a journal to document all contacts and incidents, along with the time, date, and other relevant information. Keep your records in a safe place, make a copy, and leave them in another location. I know this sounds like really hard advice, but oftentimes it is up to the victim to demonstrate a pattern of abuse to law enforcement so that they can show just how severe their harassment has become. In some cases, there are government programs that can help you out. In Colorado, we have something called the Address Confidentiality Program. And this enables victims to get mail sent to a dummy address, so stalkers would have a harder time finding out your real address. Additionally, we have something called orders of protection that survivors can apply for through the civil court process. 
And these put in place some legally restrictive walls to help build some barriers for yourself. In extreme cases, victims have even changed their name and social security number as a way to keep themselves alive. To wrap it all up for this episode, I will leave you with this. Whether you are being actively stalked, know someone who is being stalked, or are just a member of the wider culture, it is important that we stop, take a minute, and think about the ways in which we can believe survivors' stories, believe all of the stories, even the parts that make us unsure or uncomfortable. We have to find a way to stop minimizing harmful people's behaviors and start finding a way to hold them accountable. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all students of CSU 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email us at wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot edu. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.